Hello there and welcome to this month's episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs and the wonderful Chris Stokes. This month we're doing something slightly different. We're going to be asking all of your questions to Chris and getting some fantastic answers all about business, all about commercial awareness and all about your future applications. Let's get started. Hello, Chris, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially. How have you been over the last month? Very well indeed, Ben, and looking forward very much indeed to to this particular episode. So typically we cover three or four stories each month, um, but this is a slightly special episode where we're going to be responding to all of our listeners' questions. So over the last few months, you've been sending in questions, both to Thinking Commercially, also a few to uh, Bright Network more generally, um, and we're going to be covering them off today. Happy with that, Chris? Absolutely. Perfect. Um, And before we get going, make sure you do follow us on our socials. So if you go to Thinking Commercially on Instagram, Thinking Commercially on LinkedIn, you can join in the discussion and see all of the information and insights around each episode of the podcast. Particularly nice if you want to engage with uh, like-minded people, but also especially if you're doing your interviews, applications at the moment, um, really good to get lots of insights as well. Other than that, Let's get going. So I have tried to segment the questions into three core areas. So we're going to start with wider business trends. We're going to then go on to developing broadly your commercial awareness, and then we're going to end with a few application um, tips. Um, But the first question, um, which is quite personal, because I think it rose again this morning, um, we had a question from one of our listeners. uh, What makes the FTSE 100 rise? And more specifically, Chris, um, why is it so high now, given that we are at a time where lots of people are talking about economic instability, recession, um, the IMF of drop their forecast for for britain um but yet the FTSE a couple of weeks ago was hit 800 points um a record highs um but yeah why why is uh the FTSE 100 rising at this moment chris um it's it's a very good question and and it seems quite anomalous but uh the the reason is that you've got to see the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 100 is is the uh, index of the 100 largest companies listed in London on the London Stock Exchange. Um, You've got to see this in an international context. Um, You have to imagine that uh, a lot of investment globally is driven by massive international institutional investors, insurance companies, pension funds, fund managers, and so on. And for a long time, the UK market has been seen as historically cheap compared to other markets. In, in, in other words, for the amount of money that you're paying for a stock, you're getting quite a lot by way of income, by way of dividend income. So uh, one way in which market commentators express this is that the UK market is quite high yielding at the moment. In other words, the amount of money you spend buying a share, you're going to get a lot by way of dividend income. And it's extremely high yielding compared to some other markets. So that, that that's one reason. Um, another reason is that there, there's been... Uh, Um, in investment terms, what's called a rotation 
from uh, growth stocks to value stocks. So growth stocks are typically uh, tech companies, stocks that don't necessarily produce a lot of income now, but they've got terrific growth prospects. So um, investors buy them because they're really buying into a, a future income stream. And value companies are companies which aren't necessarily growing very much, but they're throwing off a lot of cash in terms of dividend. They're very established businesses, a bit traditional, a bit boring, um, but but nevertheless, they 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 plug away. Now, what happens when interest rates go up, as they have done, is that that future income stream from growth companies becomes less valuable. Because actually, if you invest your money now, you're going to get a better return uh, uh, by putting your money on deposit at the bank because interest rates have gone up. And so this rotation from growth to value, as it's called, uh, has been prompted by uh, a rise in interest rates. And um, sad to say, the FTSE 100 is stuffed full of value companies, um, traditional manufacturing companies, uh, companies in, in traditional areas that, that uh, uh, make money come what may, although not necessarily a lot of it, and sectors which actually we would regard as, as uh, rather unenticing. So energy companies, defense stocks, tobacco stocks, all of these throw out good dividend streams. And so that's attracted uh, international investors. So that's the second reason, this rotation from growth to value. And the final reason is that these FTSE 100 companies are very, very big exporters. Two thirds of them um, earn more of their income from selling overseas than they do in the UK. Mm. And I think that point on the lack of um, high growth tech stocks has helped the FTSE 100 lately because a lot of those businesses you'll be reading in the business press have typically um, dropped in value. A lot of them have uh, laid off um, staff as as well, streamlined their operations, and that's taken a hit on their share price. But the FTSE 100 doesn't typically have any of those and therefore or doesn't have many of those. And therefore, um, it's uh, it's not been impacted as much as possibly other other markets across across the world and in, in America. Moving on, and something that you did mention, energy companies, they've been in the media, they've been in the front pages of the media um, quite a lot, and there have been um, a lot of um, big headlines talking about how much bonuses the uh, execs, the CEOs of these companies are making, um, which has brought a lot of attention to them. And obviously, the idea being is that there's making lots of profits, I think, um, Shell uh, hit a profit of almost $40 billion in 2022, um, which was double the previous year and their biggest ever BP, uh, similar sort of growth story. Um, but one of our listeners uh, spoke about still being a bit confused on how they're making so much more profit when if energy prices go up, ultimately it costs them more money to to buy those the energy and therefore sell it so you know how come their margin is increasing when it should cost them more to provide the energy well it's a really good question and i like questions like this because in in a sense they're simple questions that doesn't mean to say they're easy to answer but they're simple questions which comes from somebody looking at something saying i don't get this and i i always think that's the best way to be commercially aware to look at something and say well 
I don't get this. So, so what's the explanation? Now, the short answer is not all energy companies are doing well. Uh, distributors in the retail market uh, have been hit, and a number of them have gone bust. But those that have been doing well, and Ben, you mentioned Shell and BP, they they have what are called upstream operations as well as downstream. Now, in the energy sector, upstream means extraction. That's having having the the drilling rigs. Downstream are the the the, the petrol forecourts where you sell the stuff. And um, if you have upstream operations, you are getting the benefit of wholesale prices, which is why their profits have been so great. If actually you've just got downstream operations and you're having to to buy, uh, in this case, petrol on the wholesale market, you're going to be hit. So that that's the reason. When we talk about energy companies, we really mean lots of different types of of business. A slightly different question. This is a question from from myself. Do you do you think it's fair that the CEOs of these companies are on front pages of newspapers? being called out for potentially taking bonuses and stuff like that. I I myself think that when businesses make enormous profits like this and there is a social impact, then I think it's fair for the government to redistribute some of that income. Now, the, the argument is, yes, but pension funds are going to be hit because pension funds own, own stocks like Shell and BP. So ultimately, um, um, Pension beneficiaries, pensioners will themselves suffer if the government uh, taxes some of this uh, super income. But on the other hand, the government is spending an awful lot of money at the moment helping people who can't afford energy prices. So I myself think that in these circumstances, which are quite exceptional, it's fair for the government to impose a super tax uh, in order to to, uh, claw money back. And and again, the, the argument against that is that, well, Oil companies that drill in the North Sea are already subject to huge amounts of tax, which they are, and this will put off prospective investors. Well, I, I myself don't really buy that. So I think in this circumstance, it would be fair for the profits to be to be super taxed, and so therefore CA remuneration would go down because there would be less of the profit to to pay uh, to them. Good stuff. Uh, really interesting stuff there, Chris. Thank you for that question as well. Really good question. Um, next question we have, um, which is someone from University of Southampton, where I'm an uh, alumnus of, which is uh, always exciting to um, see and a very good question as well. Um, and something which I think um, the business uh, press, uh, the finance press have been asking um, a lot over the last six months. And so, Chris, it'll be interesting to hear your views on it. But why is the UK economy going to be lagging behind other developed economies this year? And then there is a second question to this. Is it purely to do with Brexit or are there other factors at play? So, yes, this follows the uh, news, if you haven't been um, following it much, that the IMF about a week or two ago Release data suggest that the UK economy is likely to contract about 0.6% uh, this year. Um, and that has meant that out of the G7 countries, so the broadly speaking, seven of the sort of biggest uh, economies, um, we will be the worst performing. Um, there's lots of reasons for this. And I think um, people that maybe are quite pro-Remain will simply put it, say, it's to do with Brexit. 
uh, it's all of the problems are caused by Brexit. And that's why we're not recovering as quickly or not doing as well. Um, but I don't think and nothing like this is is ever as simple as that. Um, so, Chris, could you in probably a couple of minutes shed some light? We probably could talk about this for an entire episode. But could you shed some light on what you think on on that question? Well, the first thing to say is that um, and, and you mentioned that stat, Ben, about uh, the IMF saying the UK economy is likely to contract by by just over half a percent. Um, when things contract, it doesn't sound too bad. But actually, in economic terms, it's really bad because, um, and it's something that I, I I didn't realize for a long time. Economists will tell you that global growth, global prosperity, is not a zero sum game. In other words, if one country gets rich, that doesn't mean to say that it's at the expense of another country getting poor. So the the world can get increasingly wealthier, which is terrific, because it means that people are pulled pulled out of poverty. But in economic terms, just like uh, looking at the profitability of companies, because of that macro context that things should be able to grow, uh, companies are often um, uh, criticized or their, their share price is pummeled if they don't meet profit expectations. So there's there's an expectation that companies will generally grow and make more profit. So when your economy is just not, it's not even not growing, it's actually contracting. That is really bad news. It's it's kind of more severe than it sounds. Now, what, what are the causes? Um, I personally think uh, Brexit has got a lot to do with it. Um, and my own view is that either the politicians didn't understand or they didn't explain properly what economic impact on the UK Brexit would have, which is why so many people now who voted for it are beginning to to have second thoughts. But actually, that's not the real issue around Brexit. I think the real issue is that the current government refuses to acknowledge that any of our economic problems are caused by Brexit And unless the government is prepared to acknowledge that, it's very difficult for it to do anything about it. So I thought that was a really interesting insight that quite apart from whether the factors caused by Brexit are impacting the economy, it's the fact that those in political power can't have a a clear and straightforward discussion about the impact because they can't admit it. But I do think that there are longer term factors which are just as serious at play. And uh, this does affect all developed economies, but it seems to be affecting us more than others. And it's just the long term lack of productivity, productivity expressed as contribution to to gross domestic product per head in this country has stayed roughly the same for the last 20 years, um, which is surprising because it should generally be, be growing. Next question, a slightly different uh, topic, is around Bitcoin. So um, one of our listeners talks about Bitcoin saying that it was trading at 50,000. And I think this was in around the end of 2021, if I remember correctly. But the the, the height of Bitcoin was sort of, I think, end of 2021. Um, And it was being talked about a lot in the the press um, at that time. And the person said it's all gone a little bit quiet and the value of crypto has dropped off a cliff. And they're asking, was it all a big hype? 
Or do you think cryptocurrency blockchain is still going to have a massive impact on the banking world and the financial world in the years to come? Um, and I think just to add some detail to that, uh, it's now trading at about 20,000, so two and a half times less than it was at its peak. Um, and there's been um, one especially high profile um, case of fraud and um, the uh, FTX platform uh the business kind of collapsed and their founder who was kind of seen as the the darling of the uh of the crypto uh, uh boom um is now facing uh charges of fraud amongst other things so chris what's happened in the last year and a half to to bitcoin cryptocurrency blockchain and why is it not being talked about quite as much well, the um, well, one of the cliches in financial markets is it's different this time, um, because actually, if you look at the history of financial markets, pretty well everything that we do these days was done uh, two, three, four thousand years ago. There's there's nothing new in financial markets. So when people said, "Well, crypto is it's different this time," this is all new. I think I think uh, observers were right to be a, a bit skeptical. And the fact is that central banks are still talking about digital currencies. Um, so I think the underlying idea that there is a place in the financial world for digital currencies, I, I think that's still valid. And I've always thought that blockchain um, definitely has a future because it's a way of embedding an instrument's transactional history in the instrument itself so what do i mean by that well you know with a five pound note you don't know who's had it before you and when you use it to buy stuff you don't know where it's going to go the the the, the blockchain equivalent to that five pound note will have a record of everybody who's had it before you and this is really useful to combat things like money laundering and fraud and so on crypto itself i see as the frothy top of of this as it were and when you look at the history of how currencies developed, they they only really developed when they had two facets which made them really useful. One is when the currency became a unit of exchange, when you could pay for pretty well everything with it because people selling stuff were prepared to accept it. And for a while, for example, I know that uh, Tesla was accepting crypto to pay for cars, but when it became clear that the value of crypto is very volatile, then I think Tesla withdrew that. So it's got to be a unit of exchange and it's also got to be a store of value. In other words, when people uh, buy it, they know that it's it's going to hang around and it's not going to be very volatile. It's not going to go up and down uh, you know, markedly so that whatever you put into it will... will um, you know, uh, spike or, or 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 trough overnight, as it were. And I don't think crypto is yet mature enough uh, to to have those two things to be a unit of exchange or a store of value. And of course, there are different types of crypto coin around as well. So there'll need to be consolidation into no more than one, two, maybe three before those attributes. I think will will develop. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Uh, thank you, Chris, for for that answer. Um, I must say, uh, for myself, it's not a topic that um, I 
always fully understand the ins and outs of it. So um, so hopefully it gives you some insight there um, on, on, on what's happening at the moment. Um, Chris, I feel we have been realistic at some points on this uh on this uh, podcast episode so far so to end the uh the wider business trends part of uh part of this question episode um what are you optimistic about in the business world this year well just to go back ben to what you were saying before about how after we were talking about brexit it was all a bit gloomy and 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 you know lack of innovation of course the listeners to this podcast are are the future. They're the ones who are going to be innovating like crazy. So I am underlyingly always optimistic. You know, um, it's the it's the people of my age and slightly below my age who are in charge of things at the moment, who are the problem, as it were. It's it's the younger generation that are going to solve all of these problems. But in terms of being optimistic about this this immediate year, one of the strange things about financial markets, financial markets are always looking ahead. So just when things look really grim, financial markets are saying, no, no, we know that this is short term and beyond that, things are going to be back to normal, they're going to be better. And the expression in the financial markets is financial markets climb walls of worry. So you might see ahead of you just one wall after another of things to be concerned about. But markets overcome these. They climb walls of worry. And when you think back to last year and the year before that, you know, we were barely out of a pandemic. Then war broke out in Europe. Energy prices hit the roof. Inflation became rampant. Supply chains became very ropey. And by and large, the world still continued. We're still here. So I think it's quite easy if one has a daily digest of news to get uh, a bit down about things because of course um the media know and old newspaper owners always said that what sells is bad news nobody likes reading about fun stuff they, they, they always have a rather grisly interest in things that are going wrong. But if you have too much of that, which is what news consists of, things going wrong, it's very easy to assume that that's the way the world is going. So I think in the way the markets are always looking ahead, uh, I think we should be looking ahead to when this awful war in Europe uh, uh, comes to an end one way or another. And things after that will get better because when you look at what the world has weathered over the last two or three years it's extraordinary that things still seem to be functioning as they are um right that's going to end our first part um of our questions um episode and next we're going to be going on to more broadly developing your commercial awareness So the second part of this episode is all about uh, developing your broader commercial awareness. And there's been some fantastic questions on this. Um, how, Chris, do you develop an understanding of how a business operates without working there or interning there? Gosh, this is a good question. So, so difficult to answer. In, in a sense, you can't really know that much. I mean, I, I've got a much better chance of trying to understand a business than our listeners, because I've been inside a lot of businesses. And uh, because I know a lot about business, I've I've got the equipment to imagine what a business is like without having been inside it. So I, I think the, the, more, the more you intern with different businesses, the more you will develop an understanding of, of how they operate. But 
how can you develop at least some sort of insight? And 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 obviously, what we're thinking about is is how this is relevant to when you're interviewing, for example. Um, so I I think first of all, you shouldn't have a huge expectation of being able to understand a business where you're you're going to interview. They're they're not going to expect you to know everything about their business but they will expect you to be interested enough to have looked at the website, to have thought about the sector, to have identified the principal players, to think of who the competitors might be, and to have done a little bit of thinking about how they actually make money. What is it they sell, who their customers are, what sort of margins their type of product or service could command. Now, those sort of things you can learn by uh, reading, by by looking on the web and and also where you get the opportunity. I think talking to people is really, really helpful. I mean, as a former journalist, that's how I learned most of what I know these days. And the surprising thing is that when you talk to people who do know, they're very happy to share their knowledge. They don't regard it as as an imposition. If you find somebody who works in a particular sector that you're interested in, chances more often than not, they'd be really happy to tell you about that sector because they like it. That's why they work in it. So I think talking to people is very useful. But but above all, and this is something that we've stressed um, you know, on and off th- th- throughout these podcasts, I think it's having an inquiring mind. A bit like the questioner who said, I don't understand how energy companies, how they can all be making money if some of them are buying on the wholesale market where prices are high. That is a great commercial awareness question to ask. And I think commercial awareness really starts from asking the questions. You may not be able to find the answers out. You may need to do some reading around it or talk to people who may know the answers. But the key is asking the question. And so when it comes back to the interview, I think the interviews that go well are those which become a discussion where the interviewee is asking the interviewers as much about their business as they are asking the interviewee about what he or she knows about their business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people worry that um, they may not have the connections, either themselves, family, friends, whoever it, it might be. And that is a legitimate worry. But being at university, if you're still on on campus, or even if you're alumni, they often offer alumni uh, stuff if you've recently graduated. Um, often the graduates, a lot of these big companies come to you and they sort of are told uh, on a day when they're not doing what they normally do to go and go back to their university and they'll be in sort of the old sports hall in careers fairs. Just go with questions take a notebook and just learn from them and as i say they're not going to have all of the answers especially if they're working in a big company I only started six nine months ago um but they will have a, a better understanding with you of how it works and how it works for a graduate level as well so just make sure you're attending that sort of stuff um meeting people and you know what they're usually a, a year or two older than yourselves you can build up a good good relationship with them and uh, have a good chat and they'll be likely to be quite honest and let, let's say you go to a, a uni talk given by a banker or a lawyer well you know afterwards when people are milling around you you could say to them uh, how do you make money how does your organization make money and it's a really simple question which you may well find that however august and experienced these speakers are they may actually have some trouble in answering it I'd love to ask an investment banker how his or her investment bank makes money. I'd love to know what what they think the answer is. So um, as Ben says, go to these events and use them to increase your knowledge by asking what might appear to be 
very simple or stupid questions, but they're not. One, one of the things, and I've said this before I learned as a journalist, is no question is stupid, you know, and anybody who thinks you're stupid for asking the question is themselves, you know, they're, 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 they're not exhibiting great intelligence. But the caveat is often the simplest questions are actually the most difficult ones to answer. Yeah, really good advice there, Chris. Thank you for that. Uh, a question I get asked an awful lot um, by an awful lot of, of you. This has come in multiple times. Um, but Chris, what is the best business book or podcast that you've read or listened to? I'm quite a traditionalist, so I still tend to read the financial press. So the financial pages of newspapers, the financial and business uh, parts of, of websites, um, I don't think you have to um, go overboard in doing these things. I mean, these days I I read the Financial Times once, twice a week uh, just to see what's going on. I do find the FT a really good publication because they've got very good journalists and it's not just about business or finance, but it's a way of also looking at things like politics from a, a commercial angle. But I think actually what you should do is find what you find most interesting and feel most comfortable with. And I, I don't think you should regard it as, oh, crumbs, this is yet another job I've got to do. This is something else I've got to do on a daily basis, like brushing my teeth. I think it's far better to develop an interest. And it doesn't matter what the interest is in. I mean, Ben and I spend a lot of time when we're not actually recording the podcast talking about sport. And we're both interested not only in sport, but in the business of sport. And you've heard me say before, find something you're interested in and then find out how it works financially. And that will give you a great insight into to how the world works. So I wouldn't regard this as a terrible imposition of ticking the box of how many publications you're reading. What I would do is measure how much enjoyment and interest you have in something and then finding the opportunity to, to explore that further. Am I going to be able to push you for a book recommendation? Is there one book that you would really recommend that you've read over over your years? Do you know it? That is a really interesting question, and and the answer is is no because I mean I've read a load of books. A lot of them are biographies of of entrepreneurs. A lot of them are history books of of people like Carnegie. Um, I don't think there's any one book I would would recommend as being. If you read this book, then that's all you need to know about it. I, I don't think it works like that. So again, I, I would be driven by what interests you. If there, if you come across a, a, a past business person that interests you, then you know, re read about them. So no, I don't think there is a single book I'd recommend. Okay, good stuff. Well, um, I recommend obviously Chris's book, which is brilliant. We've talked about it on the on the podcast before, but to avoid a, a bit of a backlash on us not giving recommendations, I will give some of my recommendations if that's uh, if that's okay with you, um, Chris. I think um, these are just things that I've read, but uh, highly recommend if you're thinking about different business people and how they uh, act and how they think about the world i'd recommend winners by alistair campbell the uh, ex spin doctor the ex publicist for uh, tony blair's government the new labor government uh, tools of titans by tim ferris again he just analyzes in a short few pages uh, different business uh, leaders um, also from the world of sport and things things like that um i think it's hard to talk about and it's the, probably the first sort of business book i i read and i think a lot of people would have read it but 
Freakonomics. It's probably had its time in the sun, uh, possibly, and it's probably a little bit old school. But I think there is a podcast now um, as well. But reading um, Freakonomics and then Super Freakonomics or however the series went, I think it's quite fun and it will um, get you kind of thinking. And then I think um, uh, another couple of things, uh, Black Box um, Thinking is a good book uh, to think about. how you approach different tasks and problem solving um and a a book i think it's called will it make the boat go faster um is is also an excellent book which is basically looking at a i think a us uh, from what i remember i read it a few years ago us rowing team um and basically they always they obsessed over the idea that will this make the the boat go faster they were training i think the the eights in in the olympics and they were like would going to the olympic opening ceremony go make the boat go faster no and they approached it in that way and i think they came out with some really excellent results as i say it's probably about a decade since i read it so i couldn't give you all the details but definitely worth a read when you're thinking about how to approach your life and uh task and i can see chris putting his hand up so i'm hoping yeah, now just... he has got a book recommendation no, 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 just us. to say those are brilliant recommendations ben some of them i've read but some of them i haven't so i'm going to i'm going to put the ones i haven't on my must read list that's fantastic okay, really okay good good stuff well, I'm glad. I'm glad, and hopefully, maybe uh, when we talk about it in a year, one of those books that you do read, you can recommend uh, uh, on the on the pod- podcast to our listeners um, as well. Um, we're going to leave it there for developing your commercial awareness. Hope you got lots out of it in that segment. So we're going to end this episode on talking a little bit about your questions on applications. So a number of you might be doing applications, typically in the UK, especially if you're going for big uh, graduate schemes. Uh, Often the application cycle runs from sort of September to March um, for jobs and internships either in the summer or or in the in the autumn later this year. However, if you're in your final year or recently graduated, you'll be coming up to doing applications as you off board off campus or if you've been traveling for a bit or done other things before applying so i think it's always relevant we always get questions about them um, and as i say we typically don't really cover applications in our normal podcast um, because we're covering uh, the business trends so the first question is not so much specifics about an application um, but it's someone who is in their final year they're about to start thinking about applications but they don't have a clue what sector to go into they are doing a humanities degree um, at Birmingham University they were asking if you've got any advice on how they should go about deciding what sector to go into well it's a really good question and and just to go back to something which might have come across as slightly glib about you know that the 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 younger generation are going to solve all the world's problems one thing I do feel about the younger generation is that you're all so much better informed about the possible employers that you can go to than 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 people of my generation were. We not only did we not have a clue, we didn't actually give it much thought. Whereas, you know, a question like this, which is a brilliant question, is is showing how much thought uh people are putting into this. And um the first thing I would say is don't worry about it too much you know the great thing about your generation is that i think you've got plenty of time to move around and try different things you only really have to get settled into a career around your late 20s early 30s and it's completely acceptable now to to spend relatively short uh 
uh, chunks of time at different employers. In, in my day, that certainly wasn't the case. You got you 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 got launched on a career, and then you were on the train track of that career for for the rest of your life. And life, thank goodness, is no longer like that. So the first thing I, I wouldn't worry too much, but but secondly, I would focus on what are you yourself like, and what do you like doing. So, you know, if you like reading and writing, uh, if, if you're fairly solitary or do you like interacting with others, uh, do you like numeracy, do you not like, like numeracy? And then try to imagine yourself sitting at a desk at work and the sort of tasks that you would be asked to do. What sort of things would you like to, like to do? Are you much more um, wanting to be in meetings, as I say, interacting with others, front of house, dealing with customers, or are you more a, a report writing sort of person? So I would tend to think in those terms rather than should I become a banker, should I become a lawyer? And I, I would also think in terms of function rather than sector. So I would think in terms of, you know, is it marketing that I want to get into? Am I interested in regulation, that sort of thing? Am I interested in, in PR and branding? Am I interested in the world of finance? I would tend to approach it from that point of view rather than immediately jumping to, oh, my goodness, what sector should I be applying to? Yeah, really good advice. And actually, I'm full of the book recommendations now. Um, what Chris was talking about, and I think that breaks it down really nicely. And if you are worried about, I'm just offboarding education, I need to pick a sector and be doing this for the remainder of, of time. There's a book called uh, The 100 Year Life, um, which rather than breaks it out by how we traditionally looked at it, where you do three segments of life, where you have your education, your working life and then your retirement, they break it out into different chunks. And as Chris was saying, is that you can ultimately start in something, pivot into something kind of completely different. And because we're typically living longer, the whole premise behind behind the book, that is actually the the way to think about life, to live a healthy and happy life, not just thinking, I've got to work for the next 40 or 50 years in the same sector. So I better pick the the right sector for me from age 21, 22. Chris. And going back then to some of the books you're recommending and, and uh, that, that look at successful business people, one of the things I find really fascinating is to look at what people have done over their careers, given where they've ended up. And the thing that I'm constantly struck by is how varied their careers have been, how many different sectors they've moved in and out of, they've moved around. And, and that, I think, reinforces the argument that that you shouldn't worry too much about this because once you are launched on something, the opportunities to move into other things will open up. And so that although when you've been uh, academically and educationally successful, you think, you know, I, I don't want to jeopardize what I've achieved by making a mistake now in, in choosing what it is I go into. I wouldn't think of it like that nothing is a mistake everything is experience if you go into something and you don't like it then knowing what you don't like is as important if not more important than finding out what it is you you, you do like 
really good advice chris and on to the next question which i really love um so whoever sent this in thank you so much um we're talking about situational judgment tests so these are typically tests administered by uh companies during a, an application process where they'll give you typically a scenario um maybe which you are likely to face in the working world and then they give you um either options for what you would most likely do in that scenario or ask you to rank um, what you'd most likely uh, do as well. And the question is, is something which definitely, I think probably a lot of us who've uh, done these sort of tests would be asking ourselves as well. Should I answer based on what I really would do or should I answer what I think would fit the culture of the firm? I've got some thoughts on this, but Chris, I'll let you go first. Um, well, I'll, I'll be very quick. Um, the first thing is these these tests are designed not to be gamed. So the people who devise them know that that is the first thought that the people doing the test will, will have. So what I would say is um, you should always be honest because otherwise you could end up in a place that isn't a, a very good fit for you culturally because you've you've provided the answers you thought they wanted rather than the answers that you wanted to give. But the one thing I would do is in answering these questions, I would know what my reasoning is, because it may well be that in a subsequent interview, they say to you, well, that wasn't the answer we expected. But what was your thinking? Whatever answer I give, I would want to be able to articulate why I gave that answer. Maybe. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, so I, I agree with you broadly, but I think just as a caveat to that it's always bringing your best self into that interview side of things. So bring your best self into it and then answer honestly, if you see what I mean. Like the same way that on your CV, let's say you like traveling and playing video games till 4am online. You typically probably usually go for the traveling one or reading or something like that. And don't typically talk about the fact that you like to binge watch Netflix for eight hours a, a day. So yes, always be honest. But as I say, always portray that kind of more uh, professional um, idea of yourself. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to approach it. And also, I think the final point on this, if you don't pass the situational judgment test and you haven't been yourself, you'll kick yourself. If you've been yourself and you don't pass it, you can sit there and go, maybe the company just wasn't for me. If you've tried to be someone else and failed it, you'll always be thinking, what if I just was myself? I probably would have passed it. Yeah. So that's, I would say, the way to to look at it in, in my mind. Um, Chris, one of our listeners was applying for a, uh, a law job, actually. So something... Um, uh, related to uh, yourself or what you've been doing in your career. Um, and they will ask, uh, what does commercially aware mean to me? Um, and they just simply asked, how, Chris, would you go about answering it? Uh, I, I would answer it by saying um, what commercial awareness means to me is understanding the business that I am in and how it works and how I contribute to the well-being and profitability of that business. What, what is my role in the business? How does, this, how does the business actually function? But beyond that, I'd also say it's understanding the businesses of our clients. So what are the businesses that our clients and customers are in? How do those businesses work? How do their sectors work? And then the, the, the final element is um, horizon spotting. It's keeping an eye on the business and financial news to see how that might impact us as an organization and also how it might affect our customers 
in the future. So I think it's those, those three things, understanding the business that I'm in, understanding the businesses of our customers, and then keeping an eye on business and financial developments and thinking about how they might affect us and how they might affect our customers or clients. That was the truly A-star answer. I've got nothing to add on that. And it brings us also to our final question, which is another really good one. Um, Chris, I'll let you start, but I've definitely got some thoughts as well. But what was the hardest interview question you've ever faced and why? Well, I think it's got to be, what's your biggest failure? You know, when you're asked this, you, you think, oh, Lord, you know, because the trouble with that question is, however you answer it, you, you're going you, you're going to look bad. So you you either make yourself look completely useless because you're explaining some some mess up that happened, or, or you make yourself look incredibly smug by saying, "Well, there was this mess up, but you managed to retrieve it in this particular way." Um, so I that that's that's the worst question that I've ever faced, and and if you know, whenever I have been asked that, my heart just sinks. Mm. What about you, Ben? Well, I think on that one, because I did have that, I, I wrote that down as something which I was going to talk about. I do think with that one that ultimately you kind of do need to go for a fa- failure, um, because if you do go for this kind of thing going like, oh, I started failing and then miraculously through all of the actions that I took and no one else took that it, it turned around it was a success. I think people will see through that. So it's definitely going for something which is a failure and then having that sentence or two at the end, where saying what I've learned for it in the future and stuff like that. I think that's always a good way to approach that one. Whereas I actually think it's kind of, um, which is not a, a very good answer per se for our, our listeners and a bit of a cop out. It's always the, the, the question you don't expect to get. So I don't necessarily think like the weakness question or the failure question. Ultimately, it's a question that's often asked. So hopefully you can have a think about it and you would have got an answer prepared. But where I've struggled in interviews is where I've gone in and didn't know what they were going to ask or didn't predict or have a clue what they're going to ask. And I think I've got two examples of this, one of which was I was applying for audit um, and I work in marketing and startups now, which shows how different um my my career trajectory could have been if i continued on the path of going through this application but i uh, i got a telephone interview with uh, one of the big professional services firms and first of all big mistake so first interview i've ever had proper interview i've ever had first big mistake i book it they give me times and i book it for six o'clock on a friday because i'm like that's a that's a really good time to uh for me i've got friday day and then i could do it in the evening which obviously if you know what you know now no one wants to be sitting there interviewing anyone at six o'clock on a on on a, on a friday and the second thing is i'd done the research i knew the ceo was a new who what the divisions did i knew uh revenue and some of the stuff that chris that we spoke about in terms of how they make made money but at that point and i was 20 at this point i didn't even know what a competency-based question was i'd never come across them and it sounds really stupid now and all the advice that you would have been given but the entire interview which i didn't know at the time was 12 to 15 questions where it was give me an example or tell me about a time and I hadn't prepared any of this. I was using the same example over and over again. I was trying to rack my brain. Um, it became almost like a creative writing task in a lot of ways. And I was just trying to think of examples off the top of my head and spinning them to uh, to the question. And I found that interview particularly, particularly hard because of it. And ultimately now I know all those questions. I know they come up and I think I'd find it um, not easy, never easy in an interview, but at least I would have the answers ready prepared. The other one was for an exec search firm, which 
exec um, search in very, very simple terms is kind of um, top level fancy recruitment, um, basically, when I was uh, when I was uh, a graduate. And um, so went in again, I knew what competency based questions are. So I'd prepared for those. I'm now 21 um, or so. Um, but one of the questions uh, was pitch me a film. And as you can imagine, you can't really prepare for that question in the uh, if you're thinking well, unless you're you're going in to be a, a film assistant, maybe or uh, or, a, or work at a job at sort of um, one of the big uh, film companies. And I just I don't know what happened to me. I basically pitched them Big Brother um, in this uh, in this interview. So the TV show Big Brother, I don't know why I did. Um, I panicked. And I think it kind of comes to that point that if they are trying on those kind of slightly problem solving kind of questions where they're trying to catch you out and stuff like that um you have the the right and you should take a moment to really think about it um as i say probably within half a second of them asking the question i'd already started an answer which it went down a garden path which i really didn't want to be in and steve buscemi was in some form of big brother style house and the budget for it was about five million and they seemed all very surprised it's safe to say that i didn't get the role but i think ultimately the 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 teaching here is that there are going to be questions that come up that you may have not prepared for try and prepare as much as possible for the ones that you think might come up but when those different questions come up address that straight away and go look i'm gonna have a quick think about it it's something especially if it's something random like being pitching a film um and as i say try and keep it as simple as possible um and try and uh, keep it as logical as possible but definitely take that time to think about it i don't know if that answers that question um particularly well um but it yeah does brilliantly. Um, yeah brilliant but yeah. answer yeah but yeah for me pitch a film Apparently, I'm not not very good, not not creative enough to to pitch a film. And ironically, like that was exec search, which does involve problem solving. But I went into marketing, which, um, broadly speaking, is a more, I guess, slightly more creative, or typically is a more creative industry. So, uh, so yeah, so maybe the failings there um, led me on the path to making sure that then it was their uh, loss. I could do. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. It was their loss. I'm I'm not sure. I ultimately did end up in sort of the careers space in a slightly different different guys so i was maybe on the right sort of sort of path with it but um as i say definitely got unstuck um by by that look chris um that's it for this episode i thought this was going to be a nice short question answer episode but we've covered so much stuff on on this uh podcast i hope that as the listeners have have enjoyed it have got lots out of it hopefully it hasn't been too random i I know we've covered such a variety of different topics um but chris how about right at the end of this series why don't we do another one of these so we'll do another two or three sort of more standard episodes but to end the series in the summer we'll do another q a episode which means that if you can send in your questions that would be amazing. And uh, we'll pick another 12, 13 um, in the summer that we can answer and go through in June, July time. Thank you so much, Chris. I hope you it's have a great time. Really enjoyed it. And I think that's a terrific idea. Looking forward to the next Q&A very much. What a fantastic 
episode feels like we've covered so much such a whirlwind journey into the business world and commercial awareness more generally as i said at the start make sure you do follow us on instagram follow us on linkedin and join the discussion and until next time have a great month